I'm guessing most of you know that Ash Wednesday is going to be on Valentine's Day this coming Wednesday. Or is Valentine's Day going to be on Ash Wednesday? I don't know which, but it took me back to being a kid. How many remembers, how many people remember exchanging little fun Valentine's Day cards with everybody, with your classmates. So there's a little card in, in here for all of you. And I don't know about you, but it made me feel really special to get all these sweet little notes especially from the girls that I kind of had a crush on. You know, and I picked very carefully which card they were going to get and all the rest of it. But I just wanted you to know today that wherever you are on your journey of faith, you are not alone, you are loved, and you are special indeed. So happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Okay. You can open it now. You can open it later. I will not be distracted. Why don't you get, if you guys want to open it now, go ahead and do that. And you might notice that there's a punny quality to all of these Valentine's Day cards. And that's because I grew up with my dad, George. And George was two-thirds of a pun. He was PU all of the time. He thought... He thought he was, I can't resist, he thought he was so punny. <laughs> so, I was drawn to those cards. I love you guys. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Hmm. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one was with them anymore, but only Jesus. So for some of us, the combination of Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day feels a little bit like an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. How in the world do I celebrate this feeling of love when I'm headed into 40 days of what traditionally has been a time of fasting and reflection. The more I pondered that, the more I felt like there is really no better time to celebrate love as we reflect on God's love for us, manifested in what Marcus Borg called both the pre-Easter Jesus, the Jesus who he called a spirit person because of his special connection with the divine, and the post-Easter Jesus of experience and tradition. The early followers of Jesus experienced the post-Easter Jesus as the light that led them out of the darkness, the spiritual food that nourished them in the midst of their journey towards freedom and liberation. Little note there. Jesus didn't die on a cross to save us from our sins. Jesus died on a cross to save us from the slavery that we all live in inside of here. Returning to our story, Peter, James, and John have just witnessed something totally otherworldly. Reminds you a little bit of Elisha and Elijah, right? 
It's so strange, this metamorphosis business, which is the word that happens to be translated as transfiguration. Even the explanations of what they are seeing are somewhat bizarre. We've got this crazy laundry reference to how white Jesus' robe was. And I quote, dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. I don't know where that comment came from, but it's really there. You heard it from Tony. You can look it up to verify, okay? Peter, petrified, in shock and awe, doesn't know what to say, but Peter's still going to speak up. And he, (laughs) thank you, amen to that. And he reverts to what he knows, and building dwellings, pitching tents, is a part of Peter's religious tradition. Remember, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, pitching their tents as they went. And the Ark of the Covenant, which we all remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, housed the Ten Commandments and was placed in a special tent called a tabernacle. Sukkot is a week-long Jewish holiday that celebrates the fall harvest. It's one of the most joyful festivals in the Jewish religious tradition. It's a time that brings families and friends and communities together. We can pray for more of that. The holiday also commemorates the 40 years that the Jews spent in the wilderness, in the desert, after escaping from slavery in Egypt. So when something amazing happens and God makes an appearance, like he did in the wilderness when they were escaping, like he did with Elisha and Elijah and what he's doing on this Mount of Transfiguration, if you're a Jew, you're probably going to want to build a tent. That's just what you're going to do. Because as Mary Ann McKibben Dana, a popular speaker and retreat leader, writes, when a system doesn't know what to do, it does what it knows. When a system doesn't know what to do, it does what it thinks it already knows. So you can substitute almost anything for that word system. It could be congregation. We're a congregation today. It could be the company that I work for. It could be my family. It even could be a country. Because when we human beings are faced with uncertainty and fear, when we don't seem to have any good options, and when we are fearful about the future or about change, we will revert to what we know or what we think we know is the right way to go. Because why? It's comfortable and friendly. And maybe it worked in the past and maybe it'll work again. Sometimes that's a good thing to orient ourselves to what is familiar, but we need to be aware that's what we're doing because sometimes it's not always a good thing to follow old patterns. For example, violence begets violence, and we certainly see that in our world today. The Reverend Fadi Diab, rector of St. Andrews in Ramallah and St. Peter's in Birzeh, which are two towns north of Jerusalem in the West Bank, preached a sermon today 
on the last Sunday of Epiphany, remembering that that last Sunday of Epiphany, or after Epiphany, if you're going to be correct, I could see you looking at me, <laughs> um, is actually honored as World Mission, Mission Sunday for the Episcopal Church. And here's what he wrote, in part. These challenging times have left the community overwhelmed physically, psychologically, and spiritually. What has been even more distressing to the Palestinian Christian community is the utter silence, even indifference, of the majority in the international church. Just pause on that note and try to imagine what that feels like if you feel like your brothers and sisters in your church community are indifferent to what's going on in your world. He continues, as the Holy Land goes through what seems like an endless night, the church is called to engage, not retreat, to help transform pain into hope and oppression into liberation, rather than constructing shelters or tents of excuse, of safety, of tranquility, the church is called to step into the sometimes dark valleys of our neighborhoods, nations, and the world. The church's identity is entangled with her mission to be an agent of liberation and freedom in context of oppressive powers and subjugation. I commend his homily to you. I've included the link for that in my sermon text, which you'll be getting in the next day or so. And after you've had a chance to um, read all of uh, Ravi's words, um, you might want to Google friendsoftheholyland.org.uk. That's also in the text. And maybe there's other things that you can do, and I understand we're going to be commemorating that with uh, an Easter offering. Remind me of which one that is, Kathy. Okay, so there's another way for us to engage um, in our entanglement with um, our Christian brothers and sisters in, uh, in that part of the world. But to return, when we don't know what to do, we do what we know. So Peter wants to build tents, but God, being God is a God who likes to disrupt what we think we know. (laughs) I can raise my hand at that, okay? As quickly as Jesus was transfigured before them, God drops down in a cloud just as quickly and says, hey, stop looking at this scene. Stop looking at the dazzling white robe (laughs) and the visions, okay? This is about my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want you to listen. I want you to listen to him, especially when everything is falling apart. And this transfiguration story always happens in the middle of the gospel story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so where Jesus and his disciples are headed from here is they're now on their trek towards Jerusalem 
to celebrate Passover, where Jesus will, of course, be crucified on Friday. Things are about to start falling apart. And what's being recommended by this passage is just to stop and listen. So about a month ago, just before Christmas, I was asked by a nurse in what's referred to as the psych ward at Cottage to meet with a patient who had asked for a chaplain visit. She was there struggling with something that psychologists call egodystonic thoughts. I'd never heard that term before. Basically, it refers to a feeling of anxiety about disturbing thoughts that make a person feel like they are a bad person. It can be debilitating. It can be painful. This sweet young lady of about 22 years with tears in her eyes was literally petrified that she was a danger to the ones she loved the most. And she felt like God had abandoned her because of what she considered to be unforgivable noise going on inside of her head. Try to imagine what that must feel like, to really believe that somehow you are unloved by God and others because of your bad thoughts about yourself in spite of your best efforts. And typically, the harder we try, the more we are stuck with the noise. Towards the end of my time with this sweet young lady, as she told me about how she had grown up with a lot of childhood anxiety because of her heaven and hell understanding of Christianity, it prompted me to ask her if she remembered the story about Jesus being tempted by Lucifer, Satan, in the wilderness. And she said yes. And then I asked her how she imagined Jesus hearing Satan's voice. And most of us, certainly those of us in this room who no longer believe in demons and Satan, still imagine, most likely, when they're reading this story, Jesus hearing and maybe seeing an apparition talking to him at the end of his 40-day fast in the desert. Has anybody fasted for 40 days? I'll tell you what, at the end of 40 days, you can imagine all sorts of things <laughs> just, to, just to try and get past how hungry you're feeling in that moment. But isn't it more likely, I asked this young lady, that Jesus was probably hearing that voice inside of his head? So you're hungry, Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread and take care of that ache in your tummy? Or, if you want the riches and power that you deserve being who you are, why don't you stop trying to serve this God of love and just take care of number one? That's the God that you need to serve. Come on, Jesus, get with it. And finally, 
if you really are the anointed one of God, why don't you jump off the temple pinnacle that you imagine yourself to be on right now, and God can prove once and for all that you're the real deal. All that's going on inside of Jesus' head. He was having doubts about his relationship with God and whether or not God really loved him. And so I asked this young lady, do you believe that thinking those things, wondering about those things, made Jesus a bad person? And with a glimmer of hope in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, no, I guess not. And I said, you're right. Those thoughts just showed that Jesus was human, just like you and me. Sometimes we all have to stop, take a pause, and listen with new eyes and new ears, and sometimes hope is restored in the love of God and the love of others. And we find a little bit of freedom from the noise. Amen.